The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first chapter, the tenth verse, the tenth verse in the first chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now here the prophet starts a new paragraph in his introduction of the great message which God had delivered and committed unto him to give to his contemporaries. It's very important that we should bear in mind the context in which these words were uttered. The prophet writes to his nation in days of trouble, in days of confusion, in days when things were going wrong, in every single respect. Not only in a religious sense, but in a moral sense, and even in a military sense. And he is sent by God to speak to them in order that he may call them back to the true way that he may deliver them out of their present troubles and out of the still greater calamity that is threatening to come to them. And we've seen that uh, the great message can be divided into two sections. One is a description, a delineation of their condition, a diagnosis of it, an exposing of the causes of it, and then the application of the remedy. That's it. That's the whole of the Bible. There are only two things in the Bible, the law, the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. That's a rough classification, but it's a very good one. And we must never lose sight of it. We must never get lost in all the details of the Bible. We must always keep our minds fixed upon these great central, pivotal, vital principles. Now then, we've watched this man as he does all that. In his first paragraph, he gave us a description of sin. Showed us its essence, showed us its real character. Showed us the thing in and of itself, what it really is, and how it comes about, and so on. And then he went on in his second paragraph, starting at verse 5, to show us the consequences of this. And there he again paints the consequences of sin and evil in terrifying and almost lurid colors. There it is, he says, that's why you are as you are. It's because of this sin. That's the result of it all. And we came to the point last Sunday night, you remember, in the ninth verse, in which he shows us the ultimate, as it were, of sin. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. It's as bad as that. In other words, mankind in sin deserves nothing but punishment. It deserves nothing but total destruction. That's what it deserves, and it can do nothing at all about it. And we saw at the end that there was only one hope, and that is the character of God. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. It's he who's done it. We wouldn't be here tonight were it not for that. There'd be no gospel to preach. The Son of God would never have come into the world. You see, salvation is entirely of God, not of men at all. The Bible exposes the utter total inability of men, completely helpless. And the moment you understand something about the nature of sin and trace its results and effects in yourself, and as you see it displayed in the Bible, well, you'll see very quickly that men cannot possibly do anything about it. And he can't. There's only one hope. And that is God. The fact that God has so loved the world, in spite of what's so true about it, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Very well, there's the point at which we've arrived at the end of verse 9. And now the question arises, what next? 
What next? Thank God the prophet goes on. It doesn't leave us merely in a state of utter condemnation and hopelessness and helplessness. He brings us there. But he doesn't leave us there. He goes on to speak to us. And it is as it were at this point that the gospel, pure and simple, begins to speak. It's one of these points of transition from law to gospel. Of course, we've had hints of the gospel already. Thank God for that, as there were hints of the gospel even in the law given to Moses. There were burnt offerings and sacrifices. Thank God. That's gospel in the Old Testament, in the law. The grace and mercy of God are revealed even in the law. But the main function of the law is to bring us to conviction, to show us our need, to reveal our plight unto us, and to show us our utter and entire helplessness. Very well, here is the point of transition, new paragraph, quite right. What do we do next? Now, I'm putting it like that very deliberately. Because it seems to me that this is a very important point we've reached. What next, I say? Yes, but uh, the important question is this, my friend. Have you said what next? I say that a man who's rarely followed the first nine verses and has rarely understood their message, a man who's rarely believed it and seen its truth, is a man who's now rather desperately asking, what next? Well, let me put that to you in a New Testament form. In the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we are given an account of how the Apostle Peter stood up and addressed the people that were gathered together at Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem and the Jews that had come up for the Feast of Pentecost from all parts of the then civilized world, they were all there gathered together. Suddenly the Holy Ghost comes upon the church and the people come crowding together and they say, what meaneth this? What is this? And Peter got up and was the spokesman. And he began to speak to them. And what he did was to expand the Old Testament scriptures and to apply them. He began to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified, and had been showing them how he was the one that had been prophesied by the prophets, that his soul should not remain in hell or his body see corruption, but that he should rise. And he goes on and begins to apply all this to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened? The preacher was suddenly interrupted by the congregation. And what did the congregation say? Well, what the congregation shouted out to the preacher was this. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's it. They'd understood the first nine verses. They'd seen that except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, we should have been as Gomorrah. They saw what they were like and they said, what can we do? How can we get out of that? We don't want to have the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Tell us, what can we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Or if you prefer it in terms of an individual. Take the story we are told in the 16th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles about that Philippian jailer. You remember the earthquake? And the men began to feel that all the prisoners had fled. He found they hadn't. And he heard the voice of Paul saying to him, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. He'd be on the point of committing suicide. Paul says, Don't do that. So he came to them trembling. And as he looked upon them and their composure in spite of the earthquake and everything else, the men turned to them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be like you? I'm convicted. I can see I'm all wrong. You've got something that I haven't got. What is this? What must I do to be saved? Tell me. You see, he's under deep conviction. And he wants guidance as to what he's to do. Exactly like the people met together at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And this, I say, is something that is an invariable rule in God's bringing men and women to deliverance and to a knowledge of salvation. You listen to the description of sin. You see it as rebellion against God. You see it as perversion. The ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib. And you begin to realize it's true of you that you haven't known your owner nor your master's crib. 
You've been rejecting it all. You've seen the nature of sin. You've seen yourself a rebel, a fool. And you've seen something of the consequences that follow as the result of that. And this has all come home to you. And if you've really seen it, I say, your next question is, what now then? What can I do? How can I get out of this position? Have you felt that, my friends? Is that true to your experience? I'll tell you why it's an important question. Nobody believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer except the person who has seen a need of him. The world tonight is not interested in him. Why not? Well, they don't see any need of him. That's the simple answer. Campaigns are held and people shout, Come to Christ! People don't come to Christ. The masses don't come to him. Why? Well, they see no relevance in all this. Why should they come to Christ? They're all right, they say, as they are. In fact, it's never been so good. Everything's all right. So they don't come to Christ. No, no, you must have a reason. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came, says Christ, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they're the only people who do go to him. The Pharisees never believed in him. They all rejected him. It was the publicans and the harlots who went crowding into the kingdom. Why? Well, they'd seen their need of him. They were the people who were crying out in different ways, What shall I do? Sirs, what must I do? And I say that this is a very vital and all-important question for us to face at this very moment. Have you seen your need of Christ? Have you come to the point in which you say, well now, can't you tell me what I must do? It's no use proceeding unless we've seen that. I say again that it is only the man who is aware of the fact that he's ill who goes to his doctor. The other man doesn't see any need. He says, I'm all right. There's nothing wrong with me. What are you sending for the doctor for? That's the position. Well now then, all that is involved between verses 9 and 10. Because, you see, the prophet goes on to say this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. If you don't want to be overwhelmed as the cities of the plain were overwhelmed, listen. That's the answer. If you're asking, what must we do? Here's the answer. Hear, hearken, listen. Now then, what's all this? Well, let me put it in other language to you. This is what we may very well describe as the call to repentance. And this is a most important and vital matter. You see, I've already reminded you of what the people cried out as they interrupted the sermon of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Back came the answer. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the answer. Repent and believe. But repent first. Then you go on to your belief. And this is always the way that the Bible indicates to us. When a man has reached this point in which he says, what shall I do now? Back comes this invariable answer. Repent. Now then, I could easily demonstrate to you that this must come first chronologically always. It does in the Bible. The first preacher in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And he preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He is the forerunner. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He always prepares the way of the Lord. He's always the way to Christ and salvation. Repentance. The Apostle Paul reminds the elders of the church at Ephesus that this was his preaching. How day and night, both in public and in private with tears, he preached the repentance that is toward God and the faith that is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, the first message of the gospel is not come to Jesus. It's repent. It's got to be done. I go further and I say no man truly comes to Jesus until he has repented. It's impossible. He doesn't know what he's doing. Why does he go to Jesus? 
What is his reason for going to Jesus? Why should he believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? He doesn't do it unless he knows why he does it and why he must do it. There is no such thing as a Christian who's never repented. It's impossible. Repentance comes before belief. Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of light and a spirit of order and a spirit of method. He always does these things in the same way, as God does in all creation. In everything he does, God works on a system and on a principle. And he does it in this great matter of salvation. We can't afford to play with these things. Life is too urgent at the moment and too desperate. You see, you can think you're a Christian and not be a Christian. You can have a nice feeling in you and you think that means I'm a Christian. Not of necessity. Do you know why you're a Christian? Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Can you give a reason for the hope that's in you? Can you say why you're a Christian? These are the vital matters. Now that's where repentance comes in. The true Christian has repented and has believed. But repentance comes before belief. Now then, what's it mean? Well, I can't think of a better way of putting the doctrine of repentance than this verse we're looking at tonight. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear unto the law of our God. What must I do, says somebody? Well, you let me divide it up and put it like this. Think again. That's the meaning of the word repentance, isn't it? Repent. Think again. It really is as simple as that. This is always, I say, the first step. Look at it in terms of these children of Israel. Here they are. They've been turning their backs upon God. They've all gone their own way. They're laden with iniquity, seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they've gone away backward. Because of that, God's been punishing them. But though God has punished them, they've gone on with their sinful life. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. God smiting them, striking them. They're covered with bruises. They've got open sores. And yet they go on doing it. And they say, I am going on doing it. I'm not going to listen. What's repent? Repentance is a man stopping. And beginning to think. Invariably. Here it is, I say, in the case of the children of Israel, the prophet is saying to them, look here in the name of God, stop for a moment and begin to think. Don't just go on and on and on. Stop. Ask questions. Oh, let me give you the great New Testament illustration of all this. Prodigal son leaves home, pockets full of money, Goes to the far country, has a wonderful good time. Famine comes, money all goes. On he goes, he doesn't think at all, he just goes on. The devil, you see, doesn't allow us to think. He just keeps you going on and on and on and on. If only you stopped and thought, you'd soon leave him, but he doesn't let you. And there's that poor fellow there in the field with the swine and the husks. What's the turning point in his story? Came to himself. He came to himself and he said, what did he say? Well, he said what he began to think. And what he began to think was this. He says, what in the name of conscience am I doing in a place like this? What is my father's son doing in a field, sitting down amongst swine and eating husks? What's it mean? What's happened to me? What am I? Where's my brain? Where's my reason? What sort of fool are you? He began to talk to himself. He began to think. And it was only then he really did begin to think. Before then he only grumbled. And while you're grumbling, you're not thinking. You're just grumbling because the money's going and because the famine's come, but that's not thinking. To curse and to spit and to grumble and complain is not thinking. Thinking means that you really face the whole situation. And he began to do that. And that was the means of his eventually going home and having his entire position changed. Now then, says the Bible, if you've recognized the cause of your trouble and if you've seen that the things that are happening to you are the consequences of what you've been doing and your rebellion against God, stop and think. Make a halt of it. Pull yourself up. Say, now I'm going to face things. And you begin to ask yourself certain questions. What are they? Well, here's one of them. 
Where am I going? How have I arrived in this position? Why am I no longer what I once was? Why are there certain things true of me tonight in my life that used not to be true of me? What's brought it about? Why have I done it? What have I gained by doing it? What advantage have I derived from doing it? But where am I going? What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of men? What am I doing in this world? Do I just go on, round and round in the circle, never ending, always being wound up and continuing? What's it going to lead to? What's the ultimate end of all this? Where am I going to find myself? What about death? What does death mean? What lies beyond death? What do I know about these things? I've just gone on doing the things that I've been wanting to do and what I see everybody else doing and we've been going round and round. Nobody's stopped to think nor ask questions. I can see now that I've got to stop. I've got to ask questions. I want to know. Have you done that, my friend? That's the first step in repentance. You think again. Boss. You say that you've already thought, all right, and uh, what you've been doing, the life you've been living, is the result of your previous thinking. Those were your molds of thought, that was your philosophy of life, but now I say you realize that you're in trouble. Very well, what you do? Oh, think again. That's all. You just examine your philosophy. You just say, now then, I really am going to look at this seriously and soberly. I'm not just going on and on and on and round and round in circles. I want to know. Think again. Come to yourself. Very well, there is the first step in this matter of repentance. It involves thought. And of course, I take it that you're clear about this. When I say that we must think, I don't mean that we go on repeating the clichés. That's not thinking, that's a substitute for thought. Oh, I mustn't go into this tonight, you know, but I think that we all need to be taught how to think. I know many people today who don't think, they only read books. Ah, oh, but you say reading books makes me think, are you sure? Are you sure that when you read a book you don't, don't just repeat it like a parrot? That's not thinking. Repeating things you've read in the newspaper is not thinking. A machine can do that. A parrot can do it. That's not thinking. Thinking is a process in which you don't just repeat the cliches and what everybody else is saying and what everybody knows. No, no, it's that you really sit down and say, well, now then that's all right. I know that that is what everybody says. But look what it leads to in the world. Is this right? Well, I must examine this. And you begin to ask your questions. That's real thinking. Have we really thought about life, my dear friends? I don't care what age you are. You may be young. Have you ever really thought what the meaning of life is? Have you ever really asked the question, what am I doing in this world? Where have I got this life from? What am I meant to be doing with it? I'll get old one day. What's going to happen to me? What's, what's it all about? What's the point of earning my living and doing all that I'm doing? What is the end? What is man? What's it all about? You ask those questions. Have you done so? Do you know where you're going? I ask the question still more to the middle-aged who've settled down in life, perhaps. I ask it to the aged. Have you thought? Think again. Hear, oh, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. If you don't, you'll be involved in the disaster. Think again. Secondly, change your mind. That's the Greek word for repentance. The first one was the Latin word. Repent comes from the Latin. It means think again. The Greek word for the same thing is change of mind, metanoia. Interesting, isn't it? Because they're both true. And the Latin and the Greek between them give us a complete meaning. It isn't only thinking again. If you merely think again, it doesn't follow, of course, that you'll be right. You may think the same thoughts as before. You may confirm yourself in your previous decision. That's not repentance. Repentance involves the whole notion of a change of mind. So when the prophet calls upon us to hear, 
He says, I want you to listen in a very definite way. I want you to think in a particular way. And if your thinking doesn't bring you to the realization that what you've been thinking before has been all wrong, well, then it is no good. It's of no value. Because, you see, you'll just go on doing what you have been doing. And that's the thing that's brought you into your present position. So repentance involves this whole idea of a realization that we've been all wrong in our thinking. That's a terrible blow to us, isn't it? Particularly in the 20th century, when we are so proud of our thinking and our philosophy. Oh, the ancients, emotionalists, ignorant, sub-stuff, they believe the Bible, of course. Ah, but we, with our knowledge, learning our thought. Now then, the first thing the gospel asks us is to admit that we've been all wrong in our thinking, change of mind. And equally wrong, therefore, in our living and in our whole outlook upon life and in our entire behavior. You know, that is what the Bible is saying to the whole world tonight. The world in sin, in shame, in sorrow, in anguish. This word of world of hunger, I say, and of starvation and plenty in another country. Some people dying because they haven't got enough. Others throwing it into the sea, burning it because it's a surplus. That's man's world. That's what man has brought the world to. Man in his cleverness. It isn't God who's done that. It's man who's done that. It's man departing from God who's done that. God made paradise. There was no problem like that in paradise. There never would have been. That's man's world. Because of his own thinking. And so the Bible calls upon men to think again and to recognize how wrong he's been. What a fool he's been. That all his thinking has been wrong. Oh, let me sum this up in giving you the classic example of it. None other than the Apostle Paul. There he was, that self-righteous, proud Pharisee, hating Jesus Christ and blaspheming his name and trying to exterminate the Christian church. Why did he do it? Well, he tells us. He tells Agrippa, and Festus and their concerts on that famous occasion. This is how he puts it and what a confession. I thought with myself. Exactly. I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. Exactly. He was everything. He was speaker and audience. Talking to himself and agreeing with himself. Which is what every man does until he becomes a Christian. And he defends himself. And he puts up the case that he can answer. We are marvelous at this. We talk to ourselves and we think with ourselves. And we know we are right. We are unanimous. And then the Spirit of God takes hold of this word and speaks to us. And we cease to be unanimous. And we realize that we've been wrong. Totally wrong. I did it in ignorance, in unbelief, says Paul. I thought I knew so much. I did it ignorantly. In unbelief. I was a fool. I knew nothing. He admits it. He confesses it like a man. That all his thinking and all his living was altogether wrong. And of course the living follows from the thinking. If you verily think with yourself that you should do many things contrary to Jesus Christ, you blaspheme him. You persecute his church. You laugh at it and ridicule it. You try to destroy it. And Saul did it. As a man thinks, so he is. So he lives. So you've got to realize that your thinking is all wrong. And we've got to be ready to admit this and to confess it to God without making any excuses whatsoever. Did you notice how it was put there in that first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians? God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. And no man is a Christian until he sees that. You see, we've all got the mind and the outlook and the philosophy of the world, every one of us. We're all born with it. The world was very old indeed when you and I were young, says E.C. Bentley, exactly. And we all were born as old men. We've received the thinking and the philosophy of mankind in sin throughout the generations. And we absorb it almost with our food and with the very breath that we breathe in. And we think like that and we think we know. Then we've got to be convinced that it's all wrong. That the wisdom of this world is the cause of the mess that the world is in. 
We've got to see it. We've got to admit it. We've got to confess it. It's an essential part of repentance. We've not repented until we've done what David did in his 51st Psalm. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. God, have mercy upon me. Whatever made me do it, what's wrong with my thinking that I should ever have done such a thing or even wanted to do it and justified myself in doing it? God, I've been all wrong. Cleanse me. Give me a new mind. Renew a right spirit within me. That's always the second step. That a man having thought again changes his mind and admits that he's been altogether and entirely wrong. I hurry on to my third point, which is this. That he ceases, therefore, in the light of this, to rely any more upon his own capacity and upon his own wisdom. He's got them. You see, the challenge that comes to him here is this. Where is the scribe? Where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this world? Those are the questions that the great apostle hurls at those clever Greeks to whom he was writing in Corinth. Have you heard those questions addressed to you? You're why? You're a scribe. You're a reader. You're a student. You're a disputer. The disputer of this world. You're the clever man in the debating society. You can put the world right. You can always prove your argument and you get great applause from all who are listening to you. Where are you? Disputer of this world. What have you got to say? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And if ever that was true of any generation, it is surely true of this one. Look what the wisdom of this world has brought us to. It hasn't been the thing to do to believe in God in this century. The thing to do in this century has been not to believe in him. To ridicule Christianity. To say it's sub stuff. Opium of the people. All the rest of it. The clever men. The disputer of this world. The wise. The scribe. The learned. Sophisticated man. He's ridiculed it all. But what has his wisdom produced? What's it, where has it landed us? Where is it leading us to? What's it got to give us? Now then, isn't it time we began asking these questions? And I say a Christian is a man who admits that he no longer has confidence in his mind, nor in the mind of others. He sees that they're inadequate, and he's ready to admit it and to confess it. Have you come to that, my friend? Are you still holding on to the wisdom of this world? Do you really believe that the statesmen understand the cause of our ills? Do you believe that the philosophers understand it any better? Are you still reposing confidence in that kind of thing? The scribes, the disputers of this world, they're patently failing. They're entirely at sea. They don't know where they are. They're absolutely baffled and bewildered. And so are you. Are you ready to admit that yet? Or are you still putting your faith in your own brain, in your own reasoning power, in your own ability to debate, and in all the positions that you can put up? Tell me, which is it? Now then, all this is implied here. Hear the word of the Lord, which means this. You no longer rely on your own word, nor the word of anybody else. You've finished with the wisdom of the world. Have you? If you really want to know what to do next, says the Bible, that's it. In other words, you won't be ready to listen to the word of the Lord until you've lost your confidence in everything else. That's the extraordinary thing that sin does to us. We hold on to our opinions, we hold on to our views, we hold on to our philosophies, though the world's on fire round and about us. We still think we can understand and deal with it. And no man listens to the word of the Lord or to the law of our God until he has ceased to have any confidence in the wisdom of this world, in his own wisdom and in the wisdom of all others. I don't expect you to believe this gospel. If you believe some of the modern philosophers, it would be folly for me to expect it. If you're a logical positivist, if you're a follower of Bertrand Russell, you will not believe this. You can't believe this. If you put your faith in that, this is nonsense to you. You've got to finish with that. And then and then only will you be ready to listen to this. And if after listening to the analysis of the nature of sin and uh, having looked at the consequences of sin, 
in yourself and in society and in the whole world tonight, you can still go on putting your faith in that? Well, all I can say to you is this. You are very much in Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you don't change your mind, and if you don't give that up, you'll be involved in a final destruction. Beyond any question. Very well, that brings me to my last word, which is this. The final step in repentance is utter submission to God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sit down. Stop. Give up. Sit down. Listen. What's it mean? Well, what it means is this, and this is absolutely vital. It means acceptance of revelation. That's what it means. Oh, you see, this is the vital point. Let me put it in those words that I'm so fond of quoting. The great Blaise Pascal saw this perhaps more clearly than anything else. And here is what he said, that brilliant mathematician, perhaps the greatest that's ever lived. With that fine French mind with its logic and its debating capacity. Reason at its very best at its zenith probably in a man. And this is how he put it. The supreme achievement of reason is to bring us to see that there is a limit to reason. That's it. And the moment a man has seen that there is a limit to reason, he is ready to listen. Not until... But the moment he realizes that there is a limit to reason, he is ready to listen to revelation. And here is the very thing that is held before us. You've got to listen, you've got to submit utterly and entirely to the word of the Lord and to the law of our God. What's it mean? Well, it means this. That with regard to the great problems of man and life and living and death and eternity, that with regard to all the problem of what it is that makes the world what it is at the present time and all the pain and the agony and the shame and the remorse and the suffering, it is just to believe this. That there is only one wisdom with respect to it all. It is this. The Bible. What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is God's word. You see, it means that you renounce, as I say, the wisdom of men and the wisdom of the world. And you say, I want the wisdom of God. Where can I get it? Well, the answer is here. This is God's wisdom. The Bible is not a collection of books in which men have expressed their own wisdom and their thoughts and ideas. These are men who say that God revealed it unto them, that God came to them and spoke to them and opened their eyes and gave them a message. They say, we didn't do this. The Spirit came upon me. God gave me his burden. God gave me this message and I just repeated it. There it is. It isn't mine. It's his. Well, now then, this means, I say, that you and I believe that. And that we say from our hearts that renouncing every other guidance and teaching and wisdom and philosophy, we submit ourselves as little children to this book because here we have the mind of God. Here we have God speaking to us and telling us about himself. Here we have God telling us that he is over all and that he is the creator. That there would never have been a world at all if he would not made it and created it, but that he did so. Here we have God telling us the truth about men, that man was made in the image of God and made for God. 
with glorious possibilities. Yeah, we are given God's wisdom with regard to what is the matter with men and why the world is as it is tonight. And it is all that old doctrine of the fall and the sin of men and the rebellion which we've been considering together. And here, thank God, is the thing we want to know most of all. How can we be delivered out of it? Here is God's plan with respect to that and God's wisdom. Did you notice how the apostle puts it? We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But unto us which are saved Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is it. We are hearing the word of the Lord. We are giving ear to the law of our God. Here's a message that tells us there's only one way whereby you can be delivered. It's God's way. And here it is. This is God's wisdom. And what is it? Well, it is not that God has sent us another teaching which we've got to strive hopelessly to keep. But that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into it. That's it. That's the message. All the preparation for his coming in the Old Testament and then his coming and his appearing, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sending of the Spirit, his sending out the apostles, their message concerning him. Here it is. This is God's way of salvation. I can't do it. God's done it. What is it? Oh, here it is, bread and wine, the crucifixion. God laying our iniquity on his son and punishing it in him. God smiting him that we be not smitten. God making him sin that we might not be punished as sinners. God making it possible for us to be born again, to have a new nature, a new start, a new beginning, a new life, a new hope. Not taking up a new philosophy, but being entirely changed by the power of God and living as new men and as sons of God. That's the message. Give ear unto the law of our God. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah. Now that is what repentance means. That a man having come to the end of his own wisdom and having seen an end to all other human wisdom submits himself utterly and absolutely to this because it is the wisdom of God. God's explanation, God's action, God's plan and way of redemption. Here it is, and he listens to it, and he believes it. It's not an easy thing. Why? Well, his natural prejudices are against it. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, nothing but just foolishness. It's unlike everything we've ever heard. What says the man? Are you asking me to believe that I just believe that and all is right? It isn't like that in the world. I've had to earn everything I've got. I had to work for my exams. I had to work for my scholarships. I've had to work to make money in my business. You say, take it all for nothing. It's impossible. It's against everything I believe, everything I've ever known or felt or experienced. It's all against my prejudices. All right, I agree. But if you are a Christian, in spite of everything, you believe it. Why? Well, because you say it isn't man any longer, it's God. Here is something that starts on the supposition that we are failures. The gospel of Jesus Christ cuts across all our prejudices and preconceived ideas. It tells us that we're all fools, that we're all muddled in our thinking, that we've all gone astray in our thinking. Who likes that? But whether we like it or not, that is the message of the gospel. God hath made foolish the wisdom of this world, and he's given us his own wisdom. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, of course not. Why, they're proud of their intellects. They believe they understand. They're still holding on to it, though their world is a chaos. Fool! The man who's a Christian is a man who's repented. 
He's caught again and he sees he can't think. He says, very well, I can't, I'll come as a little child. I'm told to do so. Christ said, except ye be converted and become as little children. Ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. A little child doesn't understand. He believes. He takes what's given to him. You've got to be like that, says Christ. Come, follow me. Follow me in your mind. Follow me in everything. Give up. Confess you can't. Just follow me. You've got to do it, I say, in spite of your prejudices. You've got to do it also in spite of your failure to understand it fully. And this is again something very difficult, isn't it? Man, with his natural pride of intellect, wants to understand everything. He says, I'm not going to believe a thing if I can't understand it. Very well, you say, you've got to believe in God. He says, I can't understand God. And because he can't understand God, he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't realize he's making himself a fool. If you could understand God, you'd be equal to God. By definition, God cannot be understood. What you do in the presence of God is not try to understand. You bow down and worship him. Mystery. Oh, yes, says Paul, we do speak wisdom amongst them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak that hidden wisdom in a mystery. What is this? Oh, it's the mystery of God in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. You can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons and yet just one Godhead. You can't understand the mystery of Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. There I look at him and see a man and yet he's God. He's divine. He's natural. He's eternal and he's human within time. He's God and man. Can you understand that? Of course you can't. If to try to is utter folly. You don't understand, but you believe because you see it before you. He's lived in history. You see what he's done. There he is. I don't understand him. I just fall at his feet in adoration and I rise up and I follow him. You believe in spite of your understanding. If you wait until you'll understand, you'll never understand at all and you'll never believe. You must be content not to understand. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, says Paul, again to those same Corinthians in the first epistle, if any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. Let him admit he knows nothing. Let him receive the revelation. Then he'll begin to understand. And he'll go on understanding throughout the countless ages of eternity. So you believe in spite of your prejudices. You believe though you don't understand and you believe in spite of the laughter and the derision of the world. The world will laugh at you. The world will say that you've surrendered your intellect, which it is holding on to. The intellect that doesn't understand. The intellect that doesn't know what man is, that doesn't know what life is. The intellect that doesn't know why things are as they are. The intellect that cannot devise a way of salvation. They've been trying to do it now for very nearly 4,000 long years and more of known history. All civilization has failed. That's the wisdom of men. It's still failing. All the efforts, they come to naught. And yet, man still holds on to his intellect. And he pours ridicule and scorn upon a man who says, Very well, I can see now that I can't and nobody else can. I'll accept and believe and submit to the wisdom of God. And you do it, though the world laughs at you. Let it laugh. Let the world go on laughing at Christianity. Let it, let it laugh itself into hell. Let it be clever. Let it make its clever jokes. Let it get its applause. It won't last long. The men, the actors, and the clappers, they're all dying. And they'll all go to destruction. They'll be involved in the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let it laugh. It laughed at the Son of God. It ridiculed him. It poured scorn upon him. Ha! It said. Thou who savest others, come down and save thyself. How clever. It laughed at him. And didn't realize that it was laughing at itself. Let the world deride all pity. I will glory in thy name. My dear friends, it comes to that. 
If you want to know what to do, here's the only answer. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear unto the law of our God. It's all here. Everything you need is here. Whatever you may have done until this moment, I do pray, I hope, I trust that you're now ready to say this. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Or, if you prefer it, with Saul of Tarsus, who thought so much with himself and was so proud of his thinking, there he is on his back on the road to Damascus. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? And here's the answer. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear unto the law of our God. Admit you know nothing that you never will. Submit utterly, absolutely to this. Believe its message. Accept the wisdom of God. And you'll find yourself a new man in a new world with a new mind, a new outlook, a new understanding. Above all, a new hope, a new power. You'll not only be enabled to live, you'll be enabled to die. And you'll know that beyond death, you will go to be with Christ, which is far better. To be with God, to be in the glory everlasting, my friend, are you ready to submit to this? I've nothing to offer you apart from this. This is the message, the only message. Have you seen that this is the only authoritative word in the world tonight? Are you ready to renounce all other thinking and say, I desire to know nothing? Except what God has been graciously pleased to reveal to me in his most holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the law of our God and thereby be saved. Amen.